Well, good morning. Great to see everybody here again. We're so glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, you're, you're our, we're glad you're with us as well. I know sometimes we forget to mention that, uh, but we do have some joining us online, and we're glad you're here, and we hope you can be back with us soon. But we're glad everybody's here in person as well, and we hope that uh, we can, you can stick around for Bible classes and we can talk with you after, after services. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Dagon, Molech, Milcom. Some of you may recognize those names as names of false gods in the Bible. And that is by no means an exhaustive list of names of false gods that are mentioned in the Bible. Those are just some of them that we see. We see people throughout the Bible, many nations and peoples worshipped false gods. And many not just worshiping one false god, but worshiping a multiplicity of gods, a bunch of false gods. We see this all throughout Scripture, and we even see in in the Old Testament, God, the true God, we'll be talking about him this morning, the true God's chosen people, the Israelites, even fell into worshiping false gods on numerous occasions. So many, I mean, it's almost hard to count how many times the Israelites turned their backs on the true God and worshipped false gods. Maybe the most infamous situation when the Israelites worshipped false gods was in Exodus chapter 32. You'll remember Moses was on the mountain receiving commandments from God. And while he's up on the mountain, the people down below, they become impatient. And they wonder where Moses is and if he's ever going to come down from the mountain. And what do they decide to do? Well, Aaron at the head, Moses' brother, who would be the first high priest, he's kind of the leader of it all. And he, he takes the gold that they had gotten from Egypt and he casts a golden calf. And they bow down to a golden calf as if this golden calf had brought them out of Egypt. And, and they, they're worshiping this golden calf as if it is the true God. And of course, this angers God. And certainly it angers Moses to the point where he comes down and he throws the tablets down and, and they shatter. He breaks the tablets that, that the commandments were written on. He was so angry that the Israelites had turned from God. Now again, this is just one instance. We could read over and over again instances where God's own people worship these false gods, such as Baal or Asherah, so on and so forth. And ultimately, this was the main reason why they were exiled was because of their idolatry. But idol worship is actually not just confined to the Old Testament. We actually see it in the New Testament. There are are many passages that mention idolatry or that mention people who worship false gods. I think the, the clearest example is seen in Acts chapter 17. Paul's on his second missionary journey and he ends up making it to Athens. And he looks around and Acts chapter 17, 16 says that his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Paul goes to Athens and he's just looking around and he just sees that the place is just full of these false gods. All types of idols there in Athens. We're going to come back to this passage here in a a little bit. But his spirit is just provoked within him. He's distressed some passages, uh, some translations I believe say. Because the city is full of idols. And then Paul goes on to address the Areopagus there about the one true God. And again, we'll come back to that here in a in a few minutes. The point is, throughout the scripture, we see people worshipped 
false gods. They worshiped idols. But the truth is, there's only one true God. There's only one living and true God. And that's the God that we worship. That's the God of the Bible. The God that we're worshiping this very morning. He's the only true God. Nothing else or no one can compare. And you know, I think sometimes it's really easy for us to look back at the Israelites and think, how, how did they turn from God? You know, he gave them commandments on the mountain. He showed them, he revealed himself to them, and, and they had a leader in Moses who delivered them this law. God made himself plain to them, and yet they turned and worshiped I, items of gold and wood and stone. How, how could they turn from, from God? And yet I think we do something very similar. Now, I'm not saying we do the exact same thing, because I doubt any of us have an idol at home that we bow down to or that we've cast some type of image that we, we worship. That's not what I'm talking about. But we do make gods of things of this life. Folks, anything that we make first place in our life technically is an idol, technically can become our god, if you will. It doesn't have to be something that we literally make and bow down to, but it's anything that consumes our lives, that takes precedence for us. It could be a number of things like money, possessions, sports, relationships, entertainment, and jobs. So a number of things. We could go on and on and on. And, and some of those things aren't necessarily bad. Anything that occupies the throne of our hearts really is our God. And I think sometimes we, we can take these things in this life and they can consume us and they can become our God. And we, we turn from the true living God who's the only one who deserves our worship. He's the only one who deserves to be on the throne of our hearts, who deserves to be number one in our lives. We, we push him out and we put something else there. It's so easy to get distracted in this life because, that, I mean, Satan is just distracting this world. And he's, he's saying, hey, look over here. This can be the God of your life or that can take your time or this here. But there's only one true God. There's only one God who deserves our worship, who deserves our utmost attention and deserves everything that we have. And that's the God of the Bible, the God that we are going to talk about this morning. And that's the reason why we're talking about this is because we've been doing a series on the fundamental doctrines of, 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 the, of Christians and the seven essential elements of faith there on the screen. David talked about Jesus is Lord last week, and this week we're talking about, or this month, he talked about that last month, this month we're talking about one God, that there is only one God. And this is such an essential element of our faith, something that we absolutely believe. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 17. I told you we'd come back to this passage to kind of flesh this out a little bit more. So if you have your Bibles, you can go over there to Acts chapter 17. Again, uh, I think this is one of the clearest passages that show that there is just one God. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's been in Thessalonica. It didn't go so well there, so he goes to Berea. And some men come from Thessalonica there and even kind of push him out there. And he ends up in Athens. And that's where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Paul's waiting for Silas and Timothy. And we're going to pick up there in, in verse 16. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, here's what it says. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. 
So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. We've already noticed here, verse 16 says that Paul is provoked or he's distressed when he looks around and he sees that the city is full of idols. Now why? Why is Paul so distressed or provoked about this? Well, it's because he knows the one true God. He knows that they're not worshiping solely just this one true God. And so he's distressed that there's all of these idols, all of this idolatrous worship going on. And he's provoked within himself. So what's he start doing? He starts reasoning with, with the people who happen to be in the synagogues and those who happen to be in the marketplace. The marketplace or the agora was, the, was a place where many people would gather. Many people would be there. And so... Paul's reasoning with, with the people there about these things, probably about this one true God. He's talking to everyone. But eventually, he runs into these, these philosophers, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicureans were these philosophers who claimed that we should seek to maximize pleasure by removing pain from our lives. And Stoics claimed that pleasure and pain were to be treated indifferently and that our highest aim should be to live virtuously and, and justly. And so Paul is debating with these guys, these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. That would be interesting to see that debate going on. But they're, they're basically challenging him because he's teaching about Jesus and about the resurrection to the point where they eventually bring him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is this basically prestigious council of thinkers there in, in Athens. And they are... Paul is going to come before them, before them and, and talk to them. And they say, hey, we want to hear this, what they call strange teaching that you're bringing to our ears. But Luke adds a very interesting point there. Verse 21, the Athenian people, all they wanted to do was tell or hear something new. They're always sharing these new ideas, always trying to get new knowledge and the next greatest idea. And so Paul's about to share with them the greatest idea, the best idea. He's about to share with them the one true God. So let's pick up there in verse 22 and read, <clears throat> read down to verse 31. Here's what it says. So Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold 
or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, I know that's a, a bit of a lengthy reading there, but what a powerful message that Paul gives to the Areopagus here. And I love the way that, that he starts out there, that as he's going a, around, remember, he sees that the place is full of idols and he's distressed within his heart. But he saw one that had an inscription to the unknown God. You see, the people in Athens even had a, a, an altar, an idol to the unknown God. Just in case they had missed one, they're trying to cover all their bases. So they make one for the unknown God. And Paul takes that as an opportunity to say, you know what? The unknown God is the God I'm going to preach to you about. The unknown God is the God that you're missing, the only true God. All of these other ones are just idols. They're, they're things that you've crafted but the unknown God is the one that I worship. The one that you think is unknown. It's the true God. It's the real God. And so he takes that as an opportunity to tell them about the one true God. Look, look at all the things that Paul says about God here that proves that he alone is the one true God. Verse 24 has three things. God made the world and everything in it. God is Lord of heaven and earth. And God does not reside in temples made by man. Verse 25 has two things. God does not need anything from man, and God gives all men life and breath and everything else. Verse 26 has two things as well. God made all nations from one man. God marked out times in history for man and the boundaries of their lands. Verse 28 says, in God we live and move and have our being. Verse 29, God is a divine being. He's not made of material things like gold or silver or anything like that. Verse 31, God will judge the world one day. And verse 31 as well, God raised Jesus from the dead. No mere idol or thing crafted by a, a man could do these things, could create mankind, could raise someone from the dead, could, could mark out times and histories and boundaries of man. The only one who could do that is the one true God. And Paul is saying, that's the one I want to proclaim to you. That's the one that I worship is this one true God. And all of these things that you've got here in Athens, they're just things crafted by man. They're not real. They're just stone. They're just wood. But my God, he doesn't dwell in, in temples. He doesn't dwell in anything made by man. He's the one true and living God. And there is no God besides him. And I think it's pretty clear from this message that Paul is telling them about this one true God that they'd been missing. Now, this is not the only spot. There are so many other passages in Scripture that mention there's only one God. Look at Psalm 100, verses 1 through 3. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. What do we do? We shout joyfully to the Lord, and we serve him with gladness. Because he alone is God. He himself, the Lord, is God. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are not greater than him. No one is greater than him. Nothing is greater than him. He's created us. He's created everything. He alone is God. And he alone deserves our worship and to, for us to shout joyfully to him. Isaiah 44, verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, 
and there is no God besides me. No God besides the true and living God. He's the first, he's the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the king of Israel. There's no one like him, no God beside him. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is one God. Folks, over and over and over again, we could read in Scripture that there is just one God. But I have to ask you, is he the God of your life? Is he the one that reigns in your life? Or is there something else sitting on the throne of your heart? But the Scripture is clear. There's only one that deserves all of our worship, all of our praise. Now, while we believe that there is only one God, there's also something we have to talk about that's very important here in conjunction with one God. We do believe that there is one God, but we also believe that God is a triune God. In other words, that God is three in one. Now, sometimes we refer to this as the Trinity or the Holy Trinity. And I want to make sure we understand those words are actually not found in Scripture anywhere. And I know that that sometimes surprises Christians, but the word Trinity or Holy Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. It's just a phrase or words that we have tried to use to explain God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But those words aren't actually found in Scripture. But we do believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, these aren't three separate gods that we worship. They're all God, one God, but three. God is three in one. And this is something that we see in Scripture, the, the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we'll take a, a look at a few passages there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, talking about God the Father, says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There's only one Father, okay, but here it is, God the Father. And, and there's many other passages we could look to, but for the sake of time, we won't, we won't go to, to many more. But, but I, I think about when Jesus prayed to, to God in the Gospels, Father. And I think about on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's God the Father, but then we have God the Son. Matthew 1, to 23 says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son... And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus, when he was here on earth, was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully human. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But Jesus was fully human and fully God. He was, he was God in the flesh. And there's many other passages, again, we could look to, to show the divinity of Jesus. I, I would point you to the book of Hebrews. And the book of Colossians, which talk about Jesus being the exact representation or imprint of God. But here, from, from his birth, he was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we see Jesus is also divine. But then we see God, the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of of God. The spirit of who? The spirit of God. No mortal man or human or anything else can know all of God's thoughts. But who does? The spirit of God. The spirit of God, because he himself is God, knows the thoughts of the Father. 
And so we see that, there, that the Holy Spirit, that, the, that Jesus, that the Father are all God. I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, but God is three in one. We actually see a few passages where all of these are mentioned together. Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this is at Jesus' baptism. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have Jesus the Son being baptized. You have the Spirit descending on him as a dove. And then you have God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All three together in one spot here in the Scripture. Matthew 28, verse 19, the Great Commission. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice one name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All three mentioned there. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul is giving kind of a benediction here of the book of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What we see through scripture is that God is a triune God. He's one God, but he's three in, in one. And again, some, some point to this and say, that's just illogical or inconsistent. You guys say you believe in one God and yet there's three. How does that make sense? And, and a great way I've heard this described is that God has one nature. He is eternal. He is holy. He is righteous. He is good. He is unchanging. But he has three distinct personalities in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And, and again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but we clearly see from the Scripture that God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. But there's just one God. He's one God in three persons. To boil all this down, we believe, and it's clearly seen in Scripture, that there is only one God but that he is three in, in one. And folks, it's likely that you know all of this stuff, but we had to cover it because this is one of our fundamental doctrines that we believe in as Christians, that there is only one God. But again, I ask you, is this the God of your life? Is this God, the God of the Bible, is he the one true God of your life? Have you enthroned him on your heart? Or is something else there in, it, in his place? And it's again, it's so easy for us to let things rule over us instead of letting God, the, God the, God, the greatest God who's ever, ever existed. There will never be anything like God. He's eternal. He's always been. Have we let him rule in our hearts? I'm reminded of a song that we sing sometimes. It's called, How Great Is Our God? And I want to read those lyrics as I finish up here. It says this, The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice. It trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The Godhead, three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. And that's the truth. How great is our God. He's the only one 
who has redeemed us. He's the only one who sent his son to die for us so that we could spend an eternity with him. He's the only true God. Have you made him the God of your life this morning? Or is there something else there? It's true, there's only one God. But what about for you? This morning, if you've not made him the God of your life, who's alone worthy of our worship and praise, well, you can make a change this morning and make him the God of your life because he's the only one worthy to be there. If you've never given your life over to God in the first place, we'd love for you to do that this morning and make him the God of your life forevermore. If you have any need this morning, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.